We have enough supply of shale gas that could keep us running for years and years to come. But we made a political decision to rely on cheap Russian gas because of the domestic opposition to fracking. So these are all policy choices that we have consciously made over the years that resulted in incredibly high price levels. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Ash and I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, can Europe tackle the cost of living crisis? The United Kingdom is not alone in facing extraordinary inflationary pressures, with Eurozone inflation rate reaching over 9% in December last year. Governments have tended to respond with a mixture of handouts, regulations, and price controls. But a new cross-European paper from the epicenter highlights how the state contributes to high cost of living with a wide array of policies. To discuss this paper and uh, the wider work of Epicenter when it comes to European policy, I'm very excited to be joined by Aaron Anabatha. He's the head of international outreach here at the IEA, as well as the director of Epicenter. He has experience across uh, domestic politics in Europe, and he travels the world evangelizing uh, for free market or, or liberal solutions to policy problems. So maybe just start with a bit of an explanation. What is Epicenter? What, what is the role in uh, European policymaking that, that you play? Thanks a lot for having me on, Matt. Um, with Epicenter, our main goal is essentially to bring the expertise of our member think tanks to Brussels and talk with European policymakers about free market solutions uh, for the whole of Europe. So we are very much a member-driven organization. Everything that we do is pan-European in its nature. And this inflation issue is very much a pan-European problem as well. Yeah, let's get let's get into that. So obviously we hear a lot about inflation in the UK. It's often blamed on the government, uh, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly. But of course, the UK is not the only country in the world facing inflationary pressures. What is the, the discourse about inflation and, and cost of living in Europe? Is it as central to politics um, as, as it is uh, in U the UK? Well, when we talk about inflation, most of the governments are blaming the pandemic and the Russian aggression. And they are not totally wrong about that, right? So the pandemic, during the pandemic, there was a lot of money printing going on. The supply of the euro massively increased over the last five years. And obviously that led to pretty high levels of inflation. Same thing with the Russian aggression, it's imperialist war against Ukraine. Russia has been a massive supplier of energy to Europe. If the price of energy goes up, then everything else uh, also is likely to go up. So the governments have been dealt with the pretty difficult uh, hands of cards. But they, what we often don't talk about is the fact that prices were already high before the pandemic. So elevated prices are very much a result of government intervention, whether it's reducing competition in certain economic sectors like energy production or transport or high taxes in other sectors governments are often accountable and and they are causing a cost of living crisis and elevated price levels so essentially what our paper did and is trying to do is to point at all the economic regulations and mm. all the tax policies where it's in the hands of national governments to make a difference and to implement some changes so we're not criticizing the ECB, 
although there is a lot of justifiable mm -hmm. criticism. We are not talking about the Russian war of aggression. We're talking about specific policies, what European governments could do from next day onwards, if they like to, in order to ease the cost of living crisis on European citizens. Yeah, I think this is really important because the reason why we have such extraordinary high inflation right now um, can easily be attributed to kind of these short-term factors and not completely wrongly either. The war, the war with uh, Ukraine, the fact that there was a lot of money printing. Uh, we had a very similar experience um, in the UK, Europe, US, right across the world that because we had this period of low inflation, we thought relatively low inflation, uh, we thought you could just keep printing money without consequences. Turns out more money chasing fuel goods always leads to the predictable outcome of higher cost of living. But at the same time, we should remember that um, discussions about uh, cost of living and pressures on households are not new or unique um, to this particular moment. And there are many structural ways, underlying structural ways, mm. um, where the government have chosen effectively um, through their policies to push up the cost of living. And I, I think it's worth getting into some of the prominent ones in, in the paper mm. talking about it goes through a whole bunch of, um, I suppose, you, you policy unique to specific countries, but also broader mm -hmm. issues. Something that really stuck out to me is just housing, for example, just right, right across Europe. Um, we've seen restrictive housing policies, limits the supply of housing, makes it a lot more expensive, particularly to live in cities, for example. And it's not just housing, but a wide area of economic sectors like energy supply, like uh, consumer goods and food and, and uh, beverages. So just to take a couple of examples with the current uh, cost of living crisis and Russia ceasing to be the main energy exporter to the EU. I think it's worth talking about the flawed economic policies that European governments implemented when it comes to our energy supply. So obviously not relying on a foreign power that's aggressive and hostile to Europe makes sense, but restricting our own supply when it comes to gas, for example, or when it comes to nuclear energy is outright mad. So just a couple of weeks ago in Germany, and I think three days ago in Belgium, the government still decided to pursue shutting down nuclear power plants that are perfectly functional for many, many years to come. It's an ideological crusade that's not based on evidence, that's not based on facts, but because of the ideology of the governing parties, they still decided to shut down nuclear energy in Belgium that was over 10% of the country's electricity supply. And this is in the middle of an energy crisis. And I think um, it's worth noting here as well that uh, what I found quite um, important to highlight, which isn't said enough, which is when nuclear shuts down, so when Germany shuts down nuclear, it has a wider effect because the, the energy course. markets are all interconnected these days, including uh, between uh, EU countries and the UK. Well, when there's um, an excess supply in the UK, we send energy across. And when there's uh, supply issues in the UK, we, we get energy from those interconnectors. Uh, we're also in a global market for gas so and, and other resources. So when Germany shuts down nuclear, it pushes up the energy prices for everyone else because it means A, they demand more gas as well as coal, which is terrible for the environment and it ends up killing a lot more people than um, nuclear ever could. Um, but also just more directly is uh, if there's a shorter supplies um, in, in the day-to-day -day markets, in the day-to-day -day European energy markets, the consequences are higher energy prices um, in the UK as well. So there's uh, silly domestic decisions can have international consequences. 
Exactly, you're, you're totally right. And if you look at, for example, the gas supply across Europe, um, most European countries, at least the major economies in Germany, France, including the UK as well, um, we have enough supply of shale gas that could keep us running for years and years to come. But we made a political decision to rely on cheap Russian gas because of the domestic opposition to fracking. So these are all policy choices that we have consciously made over the years that resulted in incredibly high price levels when the pandemic hit and when the economic recovery after the pandemic hit rather, and when Russia decided to invade Ukraine. So our own choices are very much affecting the cost of living crisis right now. But the good news is that these are possible things to reverse. We made these bad decisions in the past, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be like this in the future. So I think it's worth talking about what are the certain economic decisions that could be implemented by national yeah. governments to reduce price levels. And energy before, before liberalization is very much that. Yeah, before we get into that, a little bit more of the pessimism, which is uh, uh, the just some of the existing kind of responses from the EU. I, I noticed the EU's you know putting up an EU-wide minimum wage. I think Epicenter has done a paper on mm. so has introduced a system of a complex system of um, energy minimum prices. Uh, what are the kind of some of the potential risks there when it comes to these other responses, the cost of living crisis, where we try to deal with the symptoms rather than the causes. We we try to manipulate prices. Um, and, and prevent the, the price signal from um, effectively functioning? Well, unfortunately, this has been the immediate response in quite a few European countries. So just to take the example of my home country, originally born and bred in Budapest, Hungary. Um, Hungary was one of the first to implement price caps on a very wide uh, sector or a very wide group of consumer goods. So it's not just energy price caps that have been implemented. There have been price caps on fuel. There are currently price caps in place um, on, on uh, basic food items like chicken or like uh, cooking oil. And as any economist would tell you, what do price caps achieve? Well, shortages. Um, and that's what happened in Hungary immediately after these price caps had been introduced. A lot of the grocery stores decided not to sell certain consumer goods. In response, the government passed another legislation forcing them to sell those goods, even at a loss. So obviously, if you are an owner of a grocery shop, then what are you going to do? Well, you're going to put up the prices of other goods that don't have price caps. So just to give you an example, uh, cheese inflation across the Central European countries have been roughly around 20-25%. In Hungary, it's almost 100% because whatever loss is being made on the consumer goods uh, that have price caps on, they have to be somehow uh, accounted Cross for and yeah. with the offset with, with other consumer goods. So th these price caps are just temporary bad solutions that actually don't reduce inflation. Hungary has one of the highest inflation rates in the EU. It's now above 25%, uh, which is really unheard of in the last 20 years. And there is no end in sight. So all the wrong responses by many of the national governments have been tried and tested, and they failed once again, yet they keep on pushing with it.
Yeah, no, another good example of this, which has particular, I think, resonance uh, in the UK is, is Berlin's uh, price caps on rent. Uh, and, and rent control is something that's very often called for in, in fact, the, the London mayor has been demanding powers for a number of years to do rent caps. He at one point uh, pointed to Berlin. I think this is often forgotten. He said, you know, Berlin provides a shining light, an example of uh, the benefits of rent caps. But I think that's also had the the predictable consequence that although they they rent capped, I think pre twenty fourteen apartments, those apartments are cheaper as, as than they would theoretically otherwise be. But the post twenty fourteen apartments are much more expensive, um, and there's been a big reduction in new um, uh, house building in in Berlin during the periods that the price caps were in place until they got struck down. So it's just it's just that same consequence again and again when you when you start playing with the price mechanism the the results aren't necessarily what what you hope they can be. You you can't play against gravity, um, unfortunately. Exactly, and the problem is that we keep on trying, or at least policymakers keep on trying, but it leads to the same exact results. You mentioned house building. It's not just an issue in Berlin or London. It's an issue across most European cities. And instead of increasing supply, so namely building new housing. Um, it's a lot easier to say populist answers and appease to all the people who don't want to have new housing built in their neighborhoods and to say, okay, we're just going to cap rental prices. But obviously, as you mentioned, in Berlin, I think it led to a 60% reduction of new housing. And I'm sure that if it were implemented in London, it would have, this, it would have the same exact bad result. So we've established uh, inflation is bad. Uh, governments are responding poorly through things like price controls. Um, what, what, is, what is the good news here? What, what is the, the silver line? What can be done? Uh, what are some of the conclusions from uh, your authors right across Europe in terms of some of the, the good ideas to, to boost competition, to um, cut red tape, to uh, ensure that markets can, can function more effectively? Well, the good news is that some of the policy answers are out there, but they still need to be implemented. So we mentioned uh, cutting red tape, for example. If you look at economic sectors where there is a lot of competition and the reasonably light touch regulation, like in the telecom sector, for example, uh, consumer prices have been falling. And I think this is the norm um, of modern economies, that if you look at the consumer goods in the 70s, whether it's cars, whether it's fridges, whether it's mobile phones or phones, they have been falling throughout the last couple of decades. So the decrease of uh, prices in consumer goods, I think, can be achieved, but it requires a lot of competition and it requires a light touch regulatory framework. So to go back to some of the topics that we already talked about, energy policy. I think it requires a massive diversification strategy that governments are not implementing at the moment. Um, they think that they can plan for a net zero economy. They think that they know exactly what are the future technologies that are going to be used. And they just pursue that with state subsidies and with um, essentially outlawing a lot of different uh, energy production mechanisms. So I think the answer is liberalization and allowing technological innovation to happen. If you look at the UK, we are currently banning onshore wind, for example. And that's not just an issue in the UK, that's an issue in Hungary, that's an issue in many European countries where there is a de facto ban on onshore wind. There is a de facto ban on nuclear energy. 
if all of these uh, methods of producing energy and electricity are actually um, environmentally friendly and cost efficient, it seems totally mental to me that we are outlawing uh, these methods of production. And that applies to other economic sectors as well. We are artificially restricting competition in the agriculture sector, for example. Uh, so those of you who may be familiar with the EU's uh, common agriculture policy, essentially half the EU's budget goes towards subsidizing agriculture producers across the continent. But that comes at a price. We are subsidizing inefficient producers back home and restricting imports into the EU. So Africa, next door, major neighbor uh, of many European countries, they would love to export many of the agriculture goods for much more competitive prices than what we can do. But we have quotas in place, we have trade restrictions and trade barriers in place, and we are not allowing these imports to arrive onto our shores. And essentially that leads to much higher price levels for average consumers in German, French or Italian shops. And obviously it's the poorest segment of our society that feels the burden of um, these high price, level, mm. high price levels the most. So I think it's incredibly unfair to them and incredibly unfair to some of our neighbors who would love to help us out and, and bring uh, produce that's at, most, at, at much more cost-efficient prices. Yeah, there's, there's some um, very interesting research I've seen that uh, because lower-income consumers are more likely to uh, purchase goods that are highly regulated um, and mm. have resulting high costs, that, that there's a direct larger impact on lower-income households. I think a, a relatively positive story in terms of reform um, in Europe is in relation to competition in, in long-distance rail where EU-wide regulation, um, whether or not you know you think that's the right way to make policy, in this case has enabled a lot more um, open access competition on railway links across Europe. And there's there's a lot of been some discussion about Madrid, Barcelona, for example, um, having four different railway providers compete with each other, more reliable service at lower prices, and just the the effective outcomes of of having more competition rather than kind of stagnant monopolistic rail lines, which you tend to get more commonly. And that's with all methods of transport, right? So railways are one good example, but it happened with buses, it happened with airlines, and those were actually thanks to some EU directives that liberalized those markets, right? So if you're flying around There's a reason why today, we have Ryanair and exactly. extraordinarily cheap flights that, around Europe in a way the that US does not. The, the, the US, under the, under the US airline rules effectively, uh, you, you can only operate domestically in the US if you're an American company uh, and there's there's very few American companies and very few American airlines and, and much more expensive air travel as a result. Exactly. So I don't think that a lot of classical liberals say that there is zero role for governments to play. I think governments can set the right uh, regulatory framework as they have done in the aviation sector. Now they're doing in the train and, and bus sectors as well. And that increases competition and reduces prices. So I, there is definitely a role for regulators to play. But instead of trying to micromanage certain economic sectors, I think they need to set the framework uh, for these, these uh, businesses. And then the businesses are going to compete amongst themselves and uh, the consumers are going to benefit as a result. 
Um, the last one to think about, I think as well, is tax, which which gets a little bit messy in the sense that I don't, I don't think you can cut taxes to get out of inflation. Uh, it, there's a bit of a risk there. In fact, if you if you cut taxes, um, you you end up stimulating further demand, uh, and in the context of loose monetary policy, can be inflationary. But at the same time, governments can also be counterproductive in terms of the taxes that they put in place, particularly hurting certain households or alternatively discouraging investment. I wonder if you've got much of a view in terms of uh, some of the tax policies going on around Europe when it comes to cost of living. I think tax policy needs to plan for the long term. So what a lot of governments have been doing during the cost of living crisis is to introduce temporary tax cuts, right, for three months, for six months. I don't think that's the best way to go about it. If you're trying to help low-income households, then direct cash transfers are actually a much more efficient way to do it than temporary tax cuts. But I think in the long term, the right tax policy does have a role to play in reducing high consumer prices. And obviously that needs to be done uh, with the state budgets in mind. So I wouldn't like uh, European countries to run massive uh, deficits uh, for their annual budgets. Um, but if you look at France, for example, uh, France is taxing taxes. So what it means in practice that they are adding, they are calculating the VAT not on the value, on the original value of the product, but after the product already has excess duties on, for example. So if you're paying uh, for fuel at a gas station in Paris, then you're going to pay VAT based on the price that already includes excise duties and many other environmental duties rather than paying VAT. You put tax on tax effectively. Exactly. So that's not a value added tax anymore. That's, that's a totally different thing. So I think simplifying these tax systems and then ensuring that if you have environmental goals, sure, tax CO2. That's, I, I don't think that a lot of classical liberals are necessarily questioning that. But I think creating tax systems that are easily calculable and that are not specifically trying to punish uh, certain consumers, uh, but um, they, they are more uh, planned for the long term, I think that would be the goal for classical liberals. And we have a long way to go in order to achieve that in most European countries. Yes. I think that's right. I think a classic case is, of course, is syntaxes as well, where even if you accept that there might be some negative externality associated with tobacco or alcohol or gambling, um, the level of taxes that are that put on those goods is typically very much disproportionate um, to the level of harm. And at the same time, well, it's often higher. Yeah, much higher, significantly higher, as, as um, our colleague Chris Noden has shown. Uh, and, and the result is that that hurts lower income households, the ones who are are most likely to be consuming some of those goods in high quantities. And I think it's important to tax certain things that have negative externalities, but a negative impact on consumers is not the same as negative externalities from a whole societal perspective, right? So if I would be a massive alcoholic and smoker, sure, I would be killing myself, but I'm not killing my neighbor. But if I'm driving around with a massive truck in the city center of London, that has, of course, ne negative externalities. So I think the, the syntax discussion is separate from the discussion of uh, regular taxation, and you're totally right. I think syntaxes are just, you know, the overbearing arm of the many state trying to push individuals in a specific direction uh, without the need uh, to do it from a societal perspective. 
yeah, nudge plus plus, not really a nudge anymore when you're when you're forced yeah. behavior. Well, well, on that note, thank you so much, Adam uh, Bartha from the IEA and, and the director of Epicenter for a very fascinating discussion about cost of living with a bit of a broader scope across Europe. Um, if you are enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or subscribe to our IEA London YouTube channel. If you'd like to support the IEA or um, Epicenter, please do visit IEA.org. Dot UK.